0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Health Tech Podcast. My name is Dr. Elise Putt and you may have heard me over on the Creative Careers in Medicine Podcast, one of the many fantastic podcasts produced by the Talking Health Tech Network. For this festive episode, we are bringing you a special episode originally recorded for the Creative Careers in Medicine Podcast that we thought the Talking Health Tech audience would love too. Over on the Creative Careers in Medicine Podcast, we interview medical professionals who have branched out from the traditional career pathways, sharing their inspiring and creative career journeys. We hope you love this episode, and if you want more like it, we've got plenty more for you on the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thank you for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. If you're a fan of the show, we're pretty confident you'll be a fan of our in-person events. Our team is currently hard at work planning our 2024 Creative Careers in Medicine conference, which will be held Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th at Novatel Brighton Beach, Sydney. This year, we're exploring the future of healthcare with the theme, Meet Me in the Metaverse, We'll bring together speakers and delegates from all walks of medicine in a weekend that's set to inspire and excite you. We promise this won't be your typical medical conference. You can find out more about the event on our website, which is creativecareersinmedicine.com, or on our socials, which are all linked in the show notes below. We hope to see you in the metaverse. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pan, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, I'm very excited to welcome to the show, Dr. Sandro DeMame. Sandro is currently the CEO of Big Health, with a career in public health that has taken him around the world. After studying medicine and a master's of public health in Australia, he moved to Copenhagen to complete his PhD, then moved to Harvard to complete a fellowship. Following that, he went on to work for the World Health Organization in Geneva, prior to returning to Australia to take on his role at VicHealth as well as university teaching and board advisory roles. We talk about his entrepreneurial side as well and a few of the other projects he's been involved with bringing to life along this journey, including ncd Free and the Little Food Festival. You may also recognize him from his TV appearances, his cookbook or his podcast. Hi, Dr. Sandro DeMaio. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast.
1: G'day. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, to give us a bit of a sense of who you are and where you're at now, can you describe the role that you're currently working for us?
1: Yeah, so I often say to people I have the best job in public health in Australia. I'm the CEO of a statutory agency in Victoria called Vic Health or the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation. So, it was established about 40 years ago through a tax on tobacco that was hypothecated or protected, earmarked and entrusted with a small statutory agency of government that is focused on keeping Victorians healthy for as long as possible.
0: What does that actually look like in a (laughs) day-to-day role sort of way?
1: Yeah, so as a CEO, you know, there's kind of different parts of the job, I suppose. But, you know, fundamentally, public health is about understanding and responding to complex dynamic systems so that we can get the best possible health outcomes with the resources we have, which are often limited for populations that face really significant challenges, often high levels of marginalisation, a lack of opportunity when it comes to good health. So, what on earth does that mean and how, and what does that have to do with medicine? Well, it's about thinking about if I want to improve the health and lives of young people in some of the poorest neighbourhoods in Victoria, what is it that's driving poor health? Well, you might say that it's poor diet and therefore we need to tell people to eat you know more fruit and vegetables but actually when you look at the evidence when you take when you peel back the layers of the onion you realize that there is not a family or an individual in victoria that doesn't want the best for their health or for the health of their kids and those around them it's actually a lack of opportunity access being able to afford and i suppose even things like aspiration through what what is kind of valued and what is possible that ultimately result in Being able to access fresh healthy food so we don't just focus on running major social marketing campaigns raising awareness of health issues raising awareness of you know the importance of healthy eating or for example we recently launched australia's largest and victoria's first anti-vaping campaign together with quit and the cancer council but we also work on a range of different pieces in the puzzle that are required to support people to live better health so that might be federal policies You know things that governments need to do at the national level. One of the things we're working on at the moment is trying to influence the national data privacy legislation and laws because data is weaponized to sell products that are unhealthy, particularly to kids, in the digital space. So, we're very engaged in those conversations. It might mean engaging with state or local governments. Uh, We run the largest local government partnership in the country focused on supporting young people, children and adolescents to enjoy good food and a healthy life. Or it might see us you know, investing in research, investing in programs, investing in partnerships. One example is that we recently rolled out a series of youth-led community-owned food hubs that are really by young people for young people, addressing the rising rates of food insecurity and food across Victoria that's being experienced by young people. So it's this range of systems it's the complex interplay between them and it very much lends from our training in medicine. Uh, so, I might not be focused on the renal system and the complexity of the nephron and who knows, I've forgotten all of that now, the loop of Henley and gosh, brings back all sorts of cold chills from med school days. It might It's not so much about then how the kidney interacts with the heart, but it is looking at things like, well, how does the food system, the complex dynamic nature of the food system interact with the climate system, interact with... Our geopolitical systems interact with our social and health systems. And all of those complex dynamic systems involve people, involve politics, involve power. And how can we work in those systems to shape better health for Victorians?
0: Yeah, wow. Sounds like you have a lot of variety in your job. You described a lot of different things that you're doing.
1: Yeah, look, it is a really great job. So I I might, for example, yesterday, first thing in the morning, I was speaking on a, a panel with doing a lot of media work, raising awareness. Over lunch, I had back-to-back meetings internally, meeting with my executive, meeting with my team, doing some important planning. And then in the afternoon, I spent the whole afternoon at Parliament meeting with members of Parliament, ministers, really you know, getting under the hood of what's concerning them and how we can support government in the things they want to do. So, the role is really varied, but it's not dissimilar. I mean, it certainly lends on the skills I, I got from being a doctor. As I said, I think it's the best job in the country, <laughs> certainly in public health.
0: I'm interested to find out about your journey, there. because I followed your f- career for a few years, but I want to go back to the beginning and what actually drew you into medical school and what attracted you to medicine in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a big Italian family. I often say I'm I'm 80% nonna and 20% CEO. So I grew up in an Italian family obsessed with food, spent a lot of time in the garden, could not catch a ball to save myself but you know I definitely can put together dinner for 20 people and if anyone leaves my house hungry or without a box of food I get very uh, anxious and I grew up in an Italian family dominated by clinicians and doctors so my grandma was a nurse my mum was an OT my dad was a GP and it was probably the combination of those two things this kind of deep passion for food and culture and how food shapes our lives and the environment around us and in turn how our lives our cultures our food our environment shapes our food combined with then this passion for health and healthcare for i suppose being part of community and you know i was really interested in in biology in natural sciences so those two things started to converge in high school i had you know the opportunity to go to med school at monash and really explore i suppose the combination of those two passions of good food of the power of food and food systems and of course of human health.
0: Yeah. That's interesting that you were thinking that way from the very beginning. I don't think I had thought about any of that sort of stuff in high school.
1: I'm still wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up. So <laughs> don't worry. But yeah, look, it, it was I always say it's a kind of mixture of serendipity, good luck and hard work, and a huge amount of privilege. So I was, you know, I was given a lot of opportunities in life. I'm keen to use those in a way that is uh, helpful for society. I also had a good dose of just kind of serendipity and opportunities that opened up. So, I wasn't always going to public health and and it was actually a kind of constellation of experiences as a junior doctor in places like the Alfred, but also emergency departments in Gippsland and Northern Victoria, in Northern Territory and, and Central Queensland, but also after the boxing day tsunami delivering aid work in sri lanka that i started to realize that all of the populations that i was working with all of the communities that i was trying to support and empower and ultimately i suppose treat were suffering from diseases dying early from a group of conditions that we fundamentally know how to prevent or significantly delay and i thought it doesn't seem logical right or just to continue to work in a clinical capacity if there was some way that we could prevent this huge amount this tidal wave this global pandemic of preventable chronic disease and it turns out that there there as a, you know as i started to read i realized well actually there are places that are doing things to prevent it you know denmark a similar income a similar genetic pool and a similar size population to Victoria and yet an obesity rate half and a chronic disease rate much lower than Victoria. And so this got me thinking, well, while I have enormous respect for clinicians and, you know, are deeply respectful for the role that doctors, nurses, allied health workers in our hospitals play and and we have a world-class healthcare system we should be proud of, I felt that I could use my skills the experiences as a second generation Italian-Australian and of course my love of good food to try and actually prevent some of this burden of disease whether it was at home or eventually actually overseas as well.
0: How did you actually start that transition out of clinical work and into public health?
1: So that's where serendipity and kind of good timing and look it often is a mixture of things you know it's Being in the right place at the right time, it's being open to new opportunities and ideas, and it's, I suppose, also as a doctor having those opportunities afforded to me. So, in the final year of med school, I did my elective, that wonderful experience, the kind of golden ticket experience you get at the end of med school. I did my elective in Geneva at the World Health Organization, working with the director, the global director of health promotion, Dr. Golden Galea. And this really opened my eyes to public health and to the work of the multilateral and United Nations systems. And I got to see firsthand that countries around the world were in fact successfully implementing policies that were making a really big difference to the health of populations. And these were things that Australia could be doing, but for whatever reason we weren't. And it was having a big impact on the health uh, of Australians so, in my first year as a medical doctor at the Alfred doing my internship, I also did a master's in public health. I kind of fast-tracked a master's. It was a bit crazy at the time and I almost kind of, there were, you know, a few things that in my personal life that probably would have gone better had I not tried to supercharge a few, a few too, th- too many things at once. But it was a really important, like, formative experience to learn some public health skills. And then after that, I was offered through a relationship I built at the World Health Organization, I was offered a one-year research fellowship in Denmark. Now, I don't know if you've been to Denmark, but I went first time in summer, it was August, you know, I got off the aeroplane and it was this land of tall, beautiful giants on bicycles. And I was like, my God, where am I? Sign me up, I'll move here, I'll, I'll study anything. You know, the country was healthy. They were making really clever social decisions. Their health system was in a much better state and even doctors had better work-life balance. I thought this is a great model. So I signed up for the first year and arrived six months later in late January. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Denmark in January, but it is not endless summer days and Danes on their bicycles. They all go into hibernation. It's dark for about 20 hours a day and it was minus 20. It was a rude shock, but despite that, I had a really fabulous year doing research and was kind of just open to whatever came next, tried not to overthink it. I always knew, I suppose, also this incredible privilege we have as doctors. I always knew that if it didn't work, I had a great job waiting for me back in Australia and I planned to kind of locum and travel and enjoy primary care in particular. I loved primary care and general practice. But anyway, I fell into this opportunity in Mongolia to run a national survey, the first national health census in Mongolia, funded by the US government. I was back and forth from Mongolia to Denmark for about two and a half years. And at every point where I thought Australia would pull me back to clinical medicine, whether it was at the end of my PhD, and then I was offered a postdoc in America, or at the end of my postdoc, and then I was offered the job in Geneva public health just kept calling. And now I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: So, each of those transitioned from your PhD to the fellowship. Was that another serendipitous sort of thing? Or was that something that you really thought long and hard about? Because the idea of going to Harvard is very prestigious and (laughs) sought after opportunity.
1: It's so funny you say that. So, it was certainly not something that I, I had no idea where Harvard was. Harvard was like this name that I'd kind of seen on movies and I certainly kind of wasn't saying, I want to get there and this is what I'm going to do next. But I was working really hard and I was working with amazing people and I was doing something I was deeply passionate about. So, we launched a, a social startup called NCD Free. We reached millions of young people within the first 18 months. We crowdsourced it through Indiegogo. We raised 60 grand in 30 days, launched it in a number of locations around the world and ran these boot camps, bringing together multisectoral young leaders to, to talk about and address complex, wicked health challenges. And so, I think because I was so passionate and doing something that was relatively out of the box, probably more so for entrepreneurialism, a word that I took a long time to become comfortable with, (laughs) I was kind of tapped on the shoulder or invited to do this two-year fellowship in Boston, probably much more for the reasons of innovation and entrepreneurialism and doing something different and my passion Ironically, than my publications. So, no, it wasn't something that I was really working towards. But of course, you know, when the opportunity opened up, I grabbed it with both hands and with the support of family and friends, you know, was able to kind of move my life once again. And it was the same with WHO. I was, I actually moved back to Australia at the start of 2015. I thought I was going to be settling down in Australia and probably go back to clinical medicine. I was really excited by that idea. And then, an opportunity came up at an interview for a job in Geneva uh, as a global advisor on food policy came up. And it was, you know, one of those jobs that you just can't say no to. It was sort of the destination in many ways for me, the kind of what I thought would be the pinnacle of public health. And it was in so many ways. And so, once again, clinical medicine went on hold. But it was probably more opportunities, Take being open to, I suppose, opportunities that came up than necessarily being really fixated on, this is what I have to do next.
0: Yeah. Have you ended up working clinically again at all over that
1: year? I have not. <laughs> was no. there ever
0: a big decision that you made to not go back to it? Or was there a point where you're like, oh, I've got to go and do some more hours if I'm going to keep my yeah. registration or anything like that?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of times. So, I had massive FOMO probably the first couple of years living in Denmark. I was thinking, oh, gosh, I've worked so hard to." to become a doctor and to get through my internship and a bit of residency and now I'm not using those skills I tried to do locum work from Denmark for the first probably 3 or 4 years and then eventually dropped that as well I just couldn't make it kind of work practically with life and then the probably the final was when I changed my registration from you know actively delivering medicine to whatever the other one is and sort of hung up my stethoscope officially so it wasn't really one decision, it was real it was kind of a series of decisions. I do think though that medicine in many ways is this incredible profession that gives you the confidence to take risks and do something different because it is such a stable career, and I say that with humility towards the profession and also, you know, understanding the privilege that implies. But I also think medicine actually first of all I'm a deep believer that medicine is about complex dynamic systems. The interplay of complex dynamic systems with a human at the centre that we cannot and must not forget is the most important part. I mean, that is public health. Public health is complex dynamic systems, but with a lot of humans at the centre that we must not forget. So I would not be as effective in my job today if I hadn't studied medicine. So it absolutely wasn't in any way A waste of time or I think I could have got here in a different way but it was a great training base and the other thing I I sometimes think about you know when I'm thinking about what I want to do next with my career is you know reminding myself that I left medicine because I wanted to have an impact at a population level on the deep structural drivers and determinants of poor health and inequality and so for me it's almost my moral compass That when I'm thinking about what I want to do next, I remember that I didn't leave medicine to then go and do something that is not going to take me closer to the mission that I've kind of dedicated my life to. And so, in that way, it also probably keeps me honest.
0: It sounds like you've had a huge variety of experiences I uh, I feel like we haven't even covered half the stuff you've done yet either, but going from Denmark to America and then to Geneva, I imagine all of those places were super different to live in and had super different health systems as well. What was your experience of being in America and Harvard itself?
1: Oh gosh, it, it, it's this sort of intellectual capital of the world in many ways. You know, I, I remember on Monday afternoon, Amartya Sen was just casually popping by the office who's a you know Nobel laureate. And then on Thursday, I think it was Obama was speaking, you know, in a town hall. So I mean, you have this like incredible intellectual community. And then even more than that, the people that you get to know and work alongside, which is which has always been the case for me. I mean, the best part of NCD free, the best part of, you know, almost any work that I've ever done has been the incredible people that I've been privileged to work with and the kind of insights and learnings and relationships that I've taken away. And it was the same there. I mean, you just have this kind of melting pot of incredible, passionate, hardworking people. And yeah, America is a strange and wonderful place. I have huge admiration for the kind of culture, the country, the people. I also think there are things that I'm really happy to get home to in Australia Mm -hmm. as well so it was it was an incredibly formative experience. I learned also a lot about I think what good public policy, what good leadership looks like. I learned a lot about myself. I mean, I, you know, I was sort of trying to wrangle a social startup from nothing in in this incredible ecosystem in Boston. I was then flung into, you know, one of the biggest kind of machineries of intergovernment in the world, a really political environment and trying at the same time to still do things in addition that I felt were important, like, for example, co-host a TV show on Netflix for two series. And then I ended up in Norway between that and coming back here, running a global foundation focused on food systems and helping to launch what would become one of the most talked about pieces of science this decade globally, which was the Eat Lancet Commission. So it you kind of, and at every one of those steps, you I actually learned. More about myself. I learned more about the things I love, the things I'm not good at and want to be better at, the things I'm not good at and I need to build a team to kind of complement. And I suppose, you know, it tests and makes you prove what you're really passionate about and how much of what you do is purpose versus ego and how you do more of it based on purpose because, you know, ego will only get you so far. So all of those things were really. The outcomes of these formative experiences living in a different country, I can't recommend enough. I mean, you kind of get this opportunity to reinvent your life, to really decide what it is you want to be. It's kind of like when you go from high school to university and suddenly you can just be yourself and choose your friends again and, you know, the wear the clothes you've always wanted to wear. Well, this, I mean, this more in a professional sense, but when you go from, when you give yourself the opportunity to move to a new ecosystem and to, live in another country and maybe even work in a different sector, but where your purpose still aligns, it allows you to really truly work out who you are and what you're passionate about and kind of cut away the stuff that's not so important or even not healthy, which hopefully then you take on, you know, or even take back with you when you return to Australia to continue to do great things for our country.
0: I'm interested to hear a bit more about the creative side of things that you've done as well. So, you mentioned that You've been part of a TV series, which is actually what Google says. If I don't know. If you Google your name, it comes up as Sandra TV personality, which may not be what you want to be known for, but that's what Google knows you as. I, I'm not oh saying God. that it's is not that, a good thing true? to be known for. I just think it minimizes everything else that you've done. But you've also got a podcast <laughs> and you've published a cookbook. How did all of those creative things come about? Were those things you sought out or things that came to you?
1: In the last 10 years... Everything I'm passionate about, all of the metrics of progress have gone backwards. As a global humanity committed to the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, pretty much every metric of sustainable development, including health, has gone backwards. We're not going in the right direction, whether it's poverty, gender equality, chronic disease, Uh, nutrition assuming that we can just continue to do the same things in public health or public policy or as passionate advocates for health that we did last century and somehow it's going to make a difference and it's going to get us to where we need to be most importantly in the time scale that we need to get there i mean that's just nonsense so for me i'm kind of open you know when someone brings me a crazy idea or when i come up with a crazy idea myself like let's launch a festival not a conference, let's launch a festival, let's try and get 5,000 people to come to a free festival in Melbourne to talk about climate change, health and social connection wrapped around progress for the SDGs and let's see if we can get the Convention Centre for free to do it. I'm like, yeah, let's give it a go, let's see if that moves the dial. So, for me, the kind of the TV show And it was this incredible way to take messages that I'm passionate about and reach not 50 people or 100 people or 2,000 people, but 800,000 people, you know, a week or over a couple of weeks through the national broadcaster. And eventually, the Netflix series is now in 130 countries worldwide. That, for me, is so important. Because communicating the issue, understanding the problem at hand is not going to get us to the place we need to be in the timescale we need to get there, whether it's chronic disease or climate change. But it's a necessary first step. People need to understand the challenge, understand that solutions exist, and then what they can do to be part of a movement towards a healthier, better world. So I'll give anything a go that I think can make a difference. That's kind of, you know, that's what's taken me down the line of, for example, a cookbook. I use the income from the cookbook and the TV show to launch Australia's first food festival for children at Fed Square called Little Food Festival which is now in its 6th year and has will have 10,000 kids come through this year so I try to multiply the impact through you know reinvesting the money uh, in ways that deliver good value for society but I also don't assume that any of those things are going to change the world on their own and that I can do it on my own so I do worry slightly at the idea that Google characterizes me as a TV doctor <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to make sure that I still engage in science, that I speak from a base of evidence, that I always remember the incredible responsibility that comes with the title of doctor, of being, you know, one of the kind of go-to voices now in Australia around health and health issues and try to make sure that the TV doctor might be the part that I'm known for, for a lot of people. But I also am very passionate about the policy policy the research and the science of health and public health as well. Yeah, and it's a bit of fun.
0: It sounds like you're juggling too many things at the moment. How do you actually divide your time? Are you full-time in your role as CEO or do you have part-time and other part-time commitments?
1: I'm full-time running Vic Health, but I have a great team. And I think that's a really important lesson is, you know, surround yourself with people who are passionate about what you're passionate about, who are on the same journey and want to get to the same destination because not only will they buffer you when the days get difficult, not only will you learn from them and, you know, get further as a result, but it's also a multiplier for impact. So, good leadership multiplies. I I couldn't do... 10% 10% of what I do without my team. Whether it's our communications and social marketing team here at Vic Health, whether it's my chief of staff, whether it's the small team that runs SDF, or whether it's the massive team of just supporters across society, family, friends, you know, and beyond, people who bought the cookbook, people who watch the show. I, I don't do any of these things on my own. And I've long realized that actually something I had to learn pretty quickly, and I made a lot of mistakes around because we're not taught it at med school, is how to be an effective leader. And I'm still learning it and I still make mistakes. But I've long realized that if you really want to have a significant impact, if, you know that, that whole adage, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It is absolutely true. Good leadership is a multiplier of impact. I can do the things I do, the many things, because I'm actually part of a really big, a really big and awesome team.
0: I think it's really interesting actually that we're not taught leadership skills in medicine because everyone in medicine ends up in a leadership position, whether that's a registrar to a JMO or more senior. But did, is there any particular courses or anything you did to improve your leadership skills or was it on the job learning?
1: No, I've had some really good mentors. So try and find yourself some really good mentors outside of medicine, people who you really respect and, and I asked myself the question, like, which of these people would I actually want to be at their age? And I realized that some of the people I'd been looking up to for a long time, actually on balance, they didn't have, I mean, while I respected them and they were incredible, making incredible contributions in certain spaces, I, I wanted a different balance in my life at that age, or I wanted to focus on different aspects. So, find people who are aligned with your purpose and whose lives you would love to have in 20, 30, 40 years. And then just ask them, like, you know, love what you do. Can we catch up for a coffee to talk about how you've done it? And could we catch up, say, once every couple of months when we're in the same city or when we've got a moment? For me, just kind of ask questions, get your advice. I've never had anyone say no. I think people are really chuffed and generally very generous Most really good people have been mentored themselves, so they know the impact that can have. So, first of all, find great mentors and great mentors outside of medicine who are really good leaders. The second is, yeah, there are probably things like courses. I did some things through med school. I did some things afterwards. I did the company director's course. There are a few things that I've done that are more formal, And then to be honest, if you're really a kind of impatient purpose-driven entrepreneur of health, like I know you are, Elise, and like I know so many are, it's also going to be a matter of making mistakes. And then it's being like having enough humility to be able to then pause and learn the mistakes. Like mistakes are a gift. and, And I always say critical feedback is the highest form of flattery and respect. If I've got a team- and I've built a culture where people will challenge and say, I don't like how you did this, or I think we should change that, or, you know, this is how you make me feel when you do this. I know that there's trust and respect. I know that ultimately they want me to be better at what I do. They want us to collectively be better at what we're all working towards. And so, creating the culture and having a level of, I suppose, being okay, that you're going to make mistakes. In fact, that's totally normal. And really learning from those, reflecting on it, taking some time to think, and then ask yourself, okay, how can I improve on the things that are going to make me more effective? But also, none of us are perfect. And there'll be things that there are things that I'm really just not good at. And so, I build a team of people around me who are very good at those very skills.
0: Another thing that I don't think we learn very well in med school is how to counsel patients regarding public health and preventative measures. Do you have any tips on how doctors working clinically can be better public health advocates in their role?
1: Well, I think all of the evidence and when you have conversations with people, increasingly people don't want to be told what to do, certainly not by a doctor and a white male doctor like me. They don't want to be judged. They don't want to be made to feel as though they're kind of not good enough or they've done something wrong And they certainly, very often, they're not actually aiming to kind of, you know, lose weight or, I mean, very rarely people want to have a conversation about their weight. Instead, what people want is they want to feel good. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel whole. They want to feel happy. And they want to be able to do the things that make them happy, the things they love and spend time with the people they love for as long as possible. And so, I think the more that we focus on what's important to our patients, the more that we frame it in a really strengths based way, that it's about living longer, really longer, healthier, and great lives, being able to enjoy the things we love rather than focusing on looking a certain way or being a certain weight. And I think also giving people permission that this is not something that individual, you know, most of the health challenges, first of all, of the health challenges, if you take away your genetics, are determined by factors outside the health system. So, it's going to be things actually largely outside the control of the doctor that is going to give people back the biggest health gains possible. And so, then it's about listening, understanding what drives them, speaking to them in a way that's really respectful and kind, assuming that they're trying their best and that that we're all doing the best we can with kind of what we've been given and what we can afford. And, yeah, and so I suppose, you know, really not forgetting that at the centre of that complex dynamic system and at the centre of even the renal system and the heart system and everything else is actually a person, is a human. And it's not easy to be healthy in Australia in 2023. It's almost impossible, I think, to be healthy. And so a little less judgement and a little more humility and kindness would probably go a long way. And, and, and I don't want to make it sound as though doctors are not like that already. I think they are, but I certainly wasn't when I started out as a doctor. And if I look back at the way I, I kind of thought about chronic disease and what I've learned since, I think we can come to these conversations with a lot more compassion and kindness. And I actually think we'd probably get better engagement and better outcomes for our patients if we did that.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Our final question we ask everyone that comes on the show, which is if you would to have a career outside of medicine, outside of public health, what would you do?
1: Oh, I mean, I'd love to be one of those people who like travels and eats food and like, I don't know, reviews something. I mean, minus maybe the reviewing part. So basically <laughs> just a traveling eater. That would be really fun. I you know I'd love to do something creative but I love the idea of being creative but my brother's super creative and I I'm not at all but I just admire so deeply you know his ability to come up with these incredible designs and ways of communicating look I reckon if I had to do something else though it probably goes back to my two parts nona one part doctor I'd probably be a chef or I'd probably be a chef a part-time chef because I think being a chef sounds really tough so maybe a part-time chef and and have a little restaurant somewhere and Just feed people until they're super happy with with tasty food that's, you know, that reflects my cultural heritage.
0: One of those super in-demand, always booked out (laughs) restaurants that only opens like a few nights as as you choose.
1: Maybe maybe I, oh, see, we should talk after this, Elise. Maybe we're onto something. Yeah, maybe it's like a, it's like one, there's only one table, it's open, (laughs) only like every fourth sunday in the month and there's like a little hole in the door or something i love feeding people and i love cooking and sharing food and the conversations that happen and the connection that it has across generations so yeah you'd probably find me in the kitchen if i wasn't here at vic health
0: amazing i did think that you were going to say that
1: <laughs> thank <laughs> oh, you so much for said, coming I on have the said show something else <laughs>
0: <laughs> you almost did but not quite <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show it was really wonderful to chat to you
1: awesome thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening to the creative careers in medicine podcast a proud member of the talking health tech podcast network visit the creative careers in medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path the creative careers in medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout australia and recognizes the continuing connection to lands water and community We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging.